welcome to the fifth podcast in our 2021 Advent Sermon Series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called The Final Word. Let's move on. We're back into John. We kind of, December and then early, well, last week, January, was kind of a derailment for me. So I'm getting back. So we're still kind of wrapping up Advent. Hope you're okay with that. Uh, Just, you know, for the record, it's okay to talk about Jesus coming any time of the year, all right? So we're going to do that today, and we're going to do that next week, too. Uh, And we're going to begin by thinking about new things. So every year, early, I think it's every year, and early in January, there's this big tech show. I think it happens in Vegas every year. If you geek out about computers and robotics and, and new developments that these massive companies are sinking millions of dollars into, you've probably heard of it. I don't know the name of it. It was just in the news this past week. Uh, most of these things that appear at this convention don't uh, show up in Best Buy or whatever where consumers can buy. They kind of show off what new crazy gadgets they can create. So I was looking into that, kind of fascinating, interesting stuff. I don't know how it works. You know, goggles, things, artificial intelligence kind of things, kind of, that kind of in general where we're going with technology and computers these days. Uh, and something that didn't, they also found in the news, that didn't make the convention, which is too bad it didn't make the convention because it really sounds very interesting, is another new gadget So uh, I don't know who he works for, but a researcher, not in the States, in a different country, uh, has been experimenting with TV sets. You know, we have dumb TVs, we've got smart TVs. What else can you do with a TV, right? There's got to be, what's the next big breakthrough for a TV? So he's been researching how to, and he's actually built, I think the article said he's built a prototype lickable TV screen. Yes, I said that, you heard me, uh, and it is right there, in case you're not understanding what I'm talking about. A TV that's not only smart, it tastes, all right? So I don't know exactly how this works, but it has something to do with a, a, a product that you would spray on the screen and that you could lick it to find out what, it, what that object or that item tastes like. Now, you may be having a hard time with this, right? You know, imagine you're having the little gathering, you know, family, or maybe some other people came over, uh, you got the big TV on, right, and you want to do takeout, but you're not quite sure which takeout, right, you know where I'm going, so you get the, you get the restaurant's website on the screen, and oh, look, there are other ways to interact with their menu, Right? So you spray this, whatever this chemical is, and you click on, I wonder what their Kung Pao chicken tastes like, and you can take turns, right? You all take turns coming up to the, and licking the TV to get an idea of what their menu item tastes like. How many of you would actually do that? Zero. (laughs) 
No one would do that. You know, some things that are new, some new ideas uh, that need to be run through other people, <laughs> right? I mean, I, maybe this is a nice guy. He's really intelligent, but he really ought to be talking to other people. Maybe he spends a little too much time in the lab, right, potentially, <laughs> to, to run this new idea through others. Some new ideas are just, you know, weird, uh, not practical, gross, disturbing, right, alarming. We're going to talk about something new uh, from Scripture this morning that may be disturbing, that may be, if, you, it's, if it's new to you, may be troubling, uh, may be old, and you're kind of used to the idea, if you've been in church, if you've read this passage a number of times, yet it may be something that you need to look at in a new way. Because what Scripture does is teach, even to old people like me, teaches new things. That's the power of the living Word, bringing new light to even passages and ideas that I'm used to, but can speak something new into my life right now. So, I'm going to get rid of that disturbing picture, which I'm sure you all want me to do. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at this last part of the passage we've been working through the last uh, five weeks or so, and John is addressing this new idea, this new state or condition that we can live in because of the Word made flesh. So this first 18 verses is really this dramatic introduction to something new that is happening for all people that the rest of his gospel then kind of fleshes out, digs deeper into for us, for all of us to understand. Jesus, who is God, he is saying is visible. You can see God and live. And not just see God and avoid death, but truly live to have life like you've never seen or understand uh, as the New Testament goes on to describe new life in Christ. So back on Christmas Eve, we looked at verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And I tried to stress with you, with all of us, this is grace that keeps on going, grace after grace, grace on top of grace. Grace for those who have always rejected Jesus, they get more grace. Grace for those who have accepted, who have received, but have kind of trailed off in their life, have begun to get confused, have been distracted by the world and worldly things, have grown tired, have grown weak, complacent, you name it. Grace extends to those people as well. And now John is wrapping up this intro to his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus with these other startling new ideas, okay? So verses 17 and 18 say this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So what was new then when John wrote his gospel, and this is the last gospel written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, their accounts are already kind of being passed around in different cities and different churches. John wrote last to address the newness of Jesus in a way that the other gospel writers didn't. It's new, it's powerful, it's even alarming and disruptive, 
and introduces in that way a brand new sense of who I am and where I'm going. So, what does John tell us that is new? Number one, John tells us that Jesus is God. It's strongly emphasized throughout his introduction. We began with chapter 1 looking at how John describes Jesus, and then uh, here in verse 18, and then throughout the rest of his gospel, he keeps coming back to emphasizing, in case you're not used to this new idea, that Jesus is not just another teacher. He's not just another miracle worker that comes and goes in ancient times. He is actually God himself. Now, that's where, can I go backwards here? Yes, I can. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. Uh, Translators wrestle with this verse, the best way to translate it. Um, Some some come up with the only God. Other translations, maybe one that you have, uh, says the only one who is God, okay? Uh, Again, throughout these verses, he keeps hammering on this point. Don't you dare reduce Jesus to something other than who he is. Fully God, John emphasizes. That's who Jesus is. He's not part God because he's God incarnate, because he's God in the flesh. He doesn't just look like God. He's not some kind of mysterious entity. He is a man and yet in no way diminish God. He is fully God. And because of that, I think what John is saying is we don't get to recreate him in our own image. We don't have the right to do that. What John presents, uh, the whole unified story, narrative of Scripture, what it presents, we don't get to change that. We don't control it. We We have no right to manipulate it. I just don't understand it or I don't agree with it. Therefore, I'm going to make it into something else. And you see that it happens a lot. It happened right away in the first century. Different heresies began to um, uh, appear in the earliest form of the church regarding Jesus and the difficulty and the mind-blowing difficulty, really, of understanding how can God be fully God and fully man at the same time in Jesus? It doesn't make sense. Just like the triune God, as we understand and we embrace as truth from Scripture, but it, and you try to explain that to somebody else. You can use water, you can use an egg, you can use uh, whatever kind of you know, illustrations or metaphors. They all fall short. Yeah, but what? Yeah, you can't encapsulate, you can't reduce God, you can't control who he is, you can't simplify God. God is always God, and Jesus is God. So it's he who defines himself. It's not us. We don't get, have the right or the ability to do that. And because Jesus is God, God has every right to make the rules. He has every right to examine us. He has every right to peer into our lives, to, do, to change things, to do what he does, to grab our attention so we begin to look at him, not just as another entity or another theory or another option, but we would look to him as God and nothing less than, than that. Put us in the witness stand, so to speak. Interrogate us, uh, if you will. Uh, introduce things in our life, struggles, problems that we don't want, that nobody asks for. I didn't ask for this. I'm, I'm distracted right now because it all looks like you're swimming, okay? And I know you're not swimming, but it still is very distracting. I didn't ask for this. God has every right to do this. 
He has every right to introduce whatever he does in your life. God is not random. God can be trusted, but God cannot be reduced or controlled to something like an idea that is safe for us. Okay? That's what God or how God presents himself through his written word. Much more we could say about that, but we're not going to say more about that because we're going to move on to number two. What is also new that John is talking about, Jesus can be seen and known. No one has ever seen God, verse 18 says, the only God who is at the Father's side, who is Jesus, who is God, he has made him known. Two things that G, that, that. John says about Jesus in verse 18. One is a reminder and one is a revelation. Okay? Number one, there is a reminder. No one has seen God, especially important for the Jews of the day or Jews of any day. Okay? Moses was kept from seeing God. No one has seen God, uh, the original testament says. You could be in God's presence, you could be somewhere near him, and he would protect you possibly, but no one could have their eyeballs on God and live. Why? Ever since Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's presence, since that point, because of what sin introduced uh, into this world and into our lives and into our humanity, we could not look at God. That's a reminder. No one can see him. But the story doesn't end there because of Jesus. The reminder is this. Now we can see God. Where there was nothing but separation from God, we are now come close. Because of Jesus, Jesus being God, Jesus incarnate God, man, coming into our lives, now he has become visible. John and thousands of others, the disciples of thousands of other people throughout Canaan uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry on this earth saw him with their eyes. So many artists, so many movie makers, right, uh, have tried to, to present to us an image of Jesus. And, and sometimes we like that image, and sometimes we don't. Maybe he's too white or whatever, and we struggle with that. Don't you sometimes wonder, what did he actually look like? You ever wonder about that? I do that all the time, especially reading the Gospels when people are interacting with him. What did they see? And how do they see him? Fully God, no less. So they're seeing a man, but as they begin to interact with him and as they begin to trust him and to truly believe that, as the Gospel writers say, he's the Son of Man, right? That, yeah, he's man, but undeniably is something different. And as some, like Peter and others, begin to say, nope, he's God. Truly he's God. Truly this man. Even the soldier at the cross, right? He had to be the son of God. There's something that begins as the eyes begin to open in, in this place of belief and trust. He's not just a guy. He's God. What did they see? Someday we're going to see him. We're going to see him and know him uh, as he truly is, and that's going to be mind-blowing to be in the presence of God and to see Jesus himself. John does the best that he can do with his gospel account to help us see Jesus. Okay, Obviously not with our eyeballs right now, but he shows us, even as, as, John, as the, John the Baptist sees Jesus, what, is, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. And from there, moving forward, he keeps giving us in these different accounts as he narrates for us these different viewpoints, 
these different glimpses. We can't see them with our eyes, but we can read the text and we begin to understand that's what he looks like. That's what he is. This introduction sets us up for the rest of the story. So here's my plea with you. I'm not I'm going to do it now and not at the end of the sermon. Read the rest of the book. We might just go through it. Or, you know, we haven't done a gospel account since when? I don't remember. Anyway, uh, uh, Easter's not that far away, thankfully, warmer weather. So I know all you guys that, hate, that love snow, uh, we're, just, we're never going to work this out, okay? We're just, <laughs> I can't wait for warm. <laughs> but somewhere in there, I think maybe we need to go through the Gospel of John. We haven't done that yet at City on a Hill. Uh, and just going through these first 18 verses got me all revved up for it because of what he sets us up for and how he helps us to see Jesus. So if you haven't read through the Gospel of John or any Gospel recently, I encourage you, take the rest of the book and read through it and start picking up on, he's such an intelligent, I mean, John really is a brilliant writer, the way that he introduces these ideas. So read with an attentiveness to how is he drawing me closer and helping me see Jesus, okay? So Jesus can be seen and known like that. And the third thing I want to get a settle on for the rest of this message is the the third thing that's new is jesus is grace and truth let's read again verse 17 for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ for the second time and, and anytime something's repeated take note Okay, look at it more, more carefully. For the second time, John in his introduction mentions grace and truth together. The first time was verse 14, but this time he's saying something different with that, okay? So you may read that and think that he's contrasting. I did that my whole life until recently. You read 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's no but there. There's no conjunction. He's not contrasting these two ideas. Okay, so then what is he doing? And that's what we're going to go into. Uh, There is a progression that's going on. For the law came through Moses, and then here is the rest of the story. Huh? Are you with me so far? So many times we read the original Testament, it's most of our Bible, right? And we read it as what a drag. Yuck, law, who likes to obey laws? I don't like it, Uh, no one likes it, no one likes being told what to do. And so many times, um, uh, many people who have no idea really what it's about tend to go to that because we use the word law. And that in and of itself is not good because it's more about the Torah or the teachings than just law. Okay, so use the word law, and that's, that kind of derails us right from the beginning. It's the teachings of God. So why did God give the law? Why did he start there? If the, if the best thing is yet to come, grace and truth, why doesn't he just start with that? You ever thought about that? Why, why go through all that heartache and destruction and bloodshed even? Why? Why do all that if we're just going to wind up with grace and truth anyway? I think that's a pretty good question, and that's something that I've struggled with in the past. What is the point? Tell us, right? What is the point of all this struggling, of all this confusion? So let's look at that for a moment. What is 
the law, the teaching. Number one, it's the beginning point of grace. John doesn't hate the law. Jesus doesn't hate the law. He, he says, uh, Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. He's the exclamation point on all this beauty that is the teaching of God to his people. What do we read at the beginning of the service? I love, I love your, your law. How does it go? Because in it, you set my heart free. That didn't sound like a drag, does it? No. The teachings that God gives through Moses are to draw us closer to him. The teachings are there because he's already redeemed his people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. And he says to his people, you're my children and you'll also be my possession, my prized dear possession. And you're also going to be my priests for the rest of the world, I want the whole world to see my children and how much they love each other and how much they love you and how much they love me, God says. I want all of that. And the teachings are so you can draw nearer to me. All right? It, because God's still God and the, the problems that occurred, the, the separation because of sin, because Adam and Eve, it's still there but God wants more than anything this relationship to begin and to flourish. So here's my teaching. It's a gift of grace. You ever thought of that? Do you ever read the Ten Commandments? I don't know if you've ever read, read the Ten Commandments or any of the teachings or any of the laws in Leviticus, right? People start reading uh, through the Bible, they get to Leviticus, and they stop. I did that when I was younger. Uh, what is the point of that, right? You look at that as a love letter establishing relationship that God wants to do everything he can do so we can come closer to him. That's the beginning point of grace, but there's a problem. We look at his teaching and say, I got a better way. The golden calf ad nauseum, right? Uh, the, the golden calf in the desert, yeah, we're going to worship you, but we're going to do it our way. So your teaching and your regulation, your rules, uh, that sounds good, if I want to do it, if I choose to do it, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to find a better way, and that really is where the law becomes stinky, a stench, a death to us. The law of God doesn't lead us to death. We lead ourselves to death. The teachings of God show and prove for all time how we can be confronted with the truth and go, eh, I'd rather do it my way. And my way earns for myself death, Scripture says over and over again in many different ways. So we've got to have the witness of thousands of years as proof. God graciously gives us His Word as proof. If you've ever wondered why it doesn't work on your own, bam! Here are a few thousand pages to show you, uh, you don't have to do it that way, but in case you need evidence and proof, here it is. It's there as a witness against humanity for all time. We would always, ever, rather choose death. Here's where grace and truth builds on the law. Yep, the teaching came through Moses, but grace and truth came 
through Jesus Christ. And it's another wonderful um, emphasis that John uses, because if you remember, he hasn't used Jesus' name until now. And I, I, I think that's not just, um, uh, well, for any other reason, or because he forgot to use his name, I think it's the beautiful way to end this introduction. Because of all that has happened, and especially if you're a Jew, you know at least someone has happened, but he's telling you no matter who you are, what your background is, all that teaching, yep, there was grace there, but the ultimate form of grace and truth, and we're going to get into that in a second, comes only through, and he names him. No other can do what Jesus does in bringing both grace and truth together. So John begins with Jesus is the word, and now what he's saying is Jesus is the final word. No one else is Jesus uh, and can do what Jesus does. So John's gospel introduces us and walks us through what grace and truth does, because the original covenant is not bad, but it needs to be fulfilled. It needs to be brought into this new covenant that Jesus introduces with his life and death on the cross. We need the full Jesus. Both grace and truth mesh together to address directly what our deepest needs are. So, to do that, I said, I already said, you got to read through the rest of the gospel. He, he introduced, here's another thing. Maybe I mentioned this one other time. The word grace he uses in the first chapter, uh, he doesn't use it again. But he does introduce us to truth over and over and over again. So if you read through John, numerous places and interactions, even with Pilate, uh, as Jesus stands condemned before Pilate, and Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? Oh, what an awesome moment, right? All these different moments where truth is either, the word is, is literally used, or we have these truth discussions, these truth interactions, because it's so important. On one hand, yes, to understand grace, we've already been working on that, but to understand, or at least to be introduced to how grace and truth come together, because I'm telling you, we all naturally reject that. We cannot it's so difficult to come to the point where in other people's lives especially, but even with our own life, how, how, how does grace and truth work together harmoniously? That's where John's gospel leads us. Now, to do that, to understand, I'm going to give you an example. It's John chapter 9, and uh, it's just kind of random. It's about healing of eyes because <laughs> I really didn't plan that. And it's just weird, ironic, whatever. Uh, but it's a lengthy chapter uh, where we, not every um, healing uh, example in the Gospels gives us any kind of, or gives us really any background or any input on the person being healed. And John chapter 9 is this lengthy chapter of interactions with a number of people, especially with the guy who is healed and even his parents get involved. So it's a fascinating chapter where John gives us all this additional information. This isn't just about some random person getting healed and great, I can see, and before I couldn't. No, there's far more going on to this chapter. So John shows us that how 
grace and truth collide and mesh together in the healing of this man that was born blind. Now, I don't have all the text on the screen. There's too much text. There's 40, 41 verses in the chapter. But what I will do is walk us through what I think John is trying to do in bringing grace and truth together so we can be not just smarter about it, so we can be confronted with it. That we can be confronted with Jesus, who, like I said earlier, is fully God, and he has a mission and a plan that he is going to, by his grace, uh, confront us with. Then what do we do with it? So John chapter 9 does that for us this morning. As Jesus, uh, verse 1, passed by, and he's with the disciples, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 2, there's the truth question right there. They have only had one way of thinking, and it's been the law plus. So not just the teachings that came down through Moses, but everything that the Pharisees have added to it, which was meant to clarify the law. But here's the problem. Every time you add to God's truth, you don't make it better, you make it worse. You make it more confusing and more frustrating, and that's what ended up with the Pharisees. So their, underst- their background understanding is with sin, somebody had to create this sin. It had to begin with sin to end up in blindness. Now, on the one hand, you could say the guy sinned, but, he, but he's been blind from birth. So how do, you, how do you peg him with that? That doesn't seem right or fair. Uh, so then we could blame it on his parents, right? Perhaps his parents sinned that would cause this man to be born with blindness, but then he is taking on the responsibility of his parents' sin, and that doesn't seem altogether right either. But he's blind, so sin had to happen to create this. So they ask an honest question, and it is a question that is seeking truth. And they go to the rabbi, to the teacher, to to help them understand what is truth in this situation. Who sinned. And then Jesus replies, it's not about sin here, but but it's about something far greater that's going on. Jesus answered, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So I just read through verse 5 there. And John, I think, is connecting us right back to chapter 1. Who is Jesus? He is light. The darkness has not overcome him. And again, he, a number of different times, John produces that testimony from Jesus saying, I am light, or I am the light of the world. So there is something going on that Jesus is addressing here that says it's not about sin. If you're stuck in that old way of thinking then you're confused and you're not going to learn what's going on. There is something else that I'm doing that's what? That's new. That's new for not only this man who's been born blind, but new for all of us. So take note, disciples, I am the light of the world. And this light exposes darkness and brings about new vision and new insight for all of us. So Jesus actually starts with something old, this old idea, and makes something new of it. What does he do? What does he do with this guy? 
Having said these things, he spits on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why does Jesus spit in the dirt? Got any theories on that? I mean, a lot of really smart people have wrestled with this one. Jesus heals sometimes with a touch, sometimes just with a spoken word, and someone is healed. And this time, he spits in the dirt and makes mud and smears mud on his eyes. Why in the world does he do that? Is he showing off? I can do anything I want, and I'm going to heal him like this. I don't think that is, you know, fits with his character and how he does things. You know what I think? I don't know if this is right, but it fits with what John says and how John uh, is, is leading us into new things. I think intentionally, for those who have eyes to see <laughs> and ears to hear, I think intentionally John shows that Jesus connects this work back all the way back to Genesis as he does something new with it. What does God do in Genesis when he creates? He doesn't spit that we know of, but he gets down in the dirt, and with his hands in the dirt, he forms man and breathes life, a very intimate idea. We, we talked about that when we went through Genesis. Breathing life, you've got to be close. You're not, you know, COVID safe distance here, okay? You're up with man, and as he breathes into his face and brings life to him out of dirt, I think the same idea is happening here, and Jesus is allowing us to see as he heals him, this is a new creation moment. Now, if that's the case, that's an awesome thing, that we get drawn into the mud smearing on his eyes, and now you see, I've created something new. Like back then, I still do it today. I didn't end. I didn't stop doing new things. He's just right now, you have the privilege to be right next to me as God creates a new thing again. I get goosebumps when I think about that. I think that's exactly why Jesus chooses the mud and smears it on its face. He does something old and brings it into newness again. Now, uh, he starts with a physical healing, okay? And it brings, and, and John shows us how Jesus brings it into a spiritual reality. But first, we have to go through the craziness of the Pharisees. So from verse, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verses, uh, uh, let's see, 8 and on through 33 or 32, somewhere in there, we have this interaction with the Pharisees. Because here's the problem. Here's the problem. Uh, not only is it frustrating to understand how this could actually happen, Jesus dared to heal him on what? On the Sabbath. How dare he give somebody vision on a day you're supposed to rest, right? Now, most of us kind of get past that quickly, right? Because he healed him, right? He gave him sight for crying out loud. Are you really going to get stuck in the past and the traditions and your additions to the law, the law plus? You better believe they do because that's what they are experts in in the law. So the problem is there must be yet new sin. This can't be grace and truth together in that sense. There's got to be something wrong because he broke our rule. So they bring in this individual, this man that has sight, <clears throat> uh, and he says, uh, let's see, I'm having a hard time seeing myself right now. So they have him come in after he's washed 
and he says simply, I, so I went, this man told me to go wash, I went and washed and received my sight. I love, I love the simplicity of it. He's surrounded by the religious rulers of the day who are ticked that he can see, and they're angry that it, the healing happened on the Sabbath. And here's this guy surrounded, he's seeing for the first time, and he's surrounding, he, he is seeing people who are angry at him. That's the irony of it, right? He's not this beautiful sunset, or here's a stream flowing, or whatever. He's seeing guys that hate him right now. Isn't that a wonderful thing to take in for your first sight? And that's what he's seeing. And all he can say, he's surrounded by these religious officials, is all I know is he told me to go wash, and now I see. <laughs> He's not arguing, and he's not being sassy-faced to these guys. He's just saying what simply happened. I can see now. I was blind, and now I see, and that's not good enough for them. <clears throat> they go on to grill his parents. They bring his parents in in this passage. What's going on with him? His parents are scared to death. We're going to get kicked out of the synagogue or the temple. We're not going to be able to worship. And so what do his parents do? Their final response is, He's of age. Go talk to him. <laughs> this isn't on us. It's not like we set this up. We didn't make this happen. We didn't go ask this guy to be, heal our son, give him sight. So you go bug him about it. It's not, it's not our deal. It's his. And so what do they do? They bring him in again. <laughs> More questioning must be done to figure out who is this guy who did this healing. Because this isn't right because it happened on a Sabbath. So he must not be right. So he, he dig, they dig deeper into this, uh, into this man, keep asking him questions, and let me give you another slide here. To, so to the religious, grace and truth must always be at odds. They can't look at something new like what has happened here, an act of God, and say God is up to something new and different. The only way they can see it is it's wrong. It breaks the rules, and you're wrong, and the guy who did it is wrong. It's irreconcilable. So, verses 25, verses 32, what happens here? This man says, he answers uh, their questioning. They say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. We've already got this figured out. And what does he say? He answers, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything, okay? I just started seeing here, okay? But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did, how did he open your eyes? And he says, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? That's where he got a little sassy face, okay? Uh, that's where he's maybe pushing his luck a little bit. And they reviled him, verse 28, saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. There it is again. Grace and truth, they cannot come together. We've got the truth, our version of truth, and you have gone against that truth. And it's as plain and simple, black and white as that. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. <laughs> and he gets more sassy face. Verse 30, the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. <laughs> I love it. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone who's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
the Pharisees get more ticked, and they kick him out of the temple. And that basically means uh, uh, you're excommunicated. You can no longer come back here for worship. We're so angry at you for saying these things. But really, he says, think about it. When has anything like this ever happened? How can you possibly call him a sinner when at least God has used this guy to do a miracle? I was blind, and now I can see. This man were not from God. He could do nothing. You can't teach us. So, verse 34, they kick him out. Jesus started with physical eyes, and then we move on to spiritual eyes. Through the one healed, grace and truth create a new reality, and catch this, unlike anything else. So it's a beautiful thing. A man uh, receives sight. How does that happen? How can, you know, miracle, right? Whether you believe miracles or not, Scripture presents it as truth. So we embrace it as truth, even though it's hard to understand. And we don't see this happen every day. Didn't happen then every day. But it doesn't end with just a nice story of a guy getting vision. Jesus goes on to address the greater spiritual need. And this is one of the few examples or instances in the Gospels that we see Jesus coming back to that person who was healed. He doesn't just, oh, have a good life, whatever. Uh, Jesus addresses him personally, okay? So Jesus heard, verse 35, that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? What does he do? He's moving from the sight that he got physically to a whole different kind of sight. Do you believe? Now, <clears throat> there's lots of other things, that, uh, opportunities that could be opening up in his life. All of that's great and fine. Maybe he can get a job now, he can provide for himself. But the core issue of his life is, what do you now believe in? And do you believe in the Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus, me? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 35, verse 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. You have seen him physically, because I gave you sight, but this is where we all get drawn into the story. We don't see Jesus with our eyeballs. But he asks the same question to all of us. Look, that's where the, this, the, the beauty and the genius of how John writes and speaks. Do you believe? Do you read the story? Do you grasp just a little bit of what Jesus is doing? And now the question is presented to you. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he that I may believe him? You have seen him spiritually. Have you? Have you understood who Jesus is in a whole different way, not just with your eyes, but with your heart and mind that is now bringing new illumination, that is bringing the light of God into you, and you're beginning to say, I get it. All of what Scripture and my experiences have taught me is I don't deserve Jesus for what he gives. Yet he keeps extending grace upon grace. And all the struggles that I've had with truth, the realization of, of what I am, right, and what I've done, and maybe my, maybe my religious hang-ups pile up along with that. And Jesus says, the grace and the truth of who I am applied to your life, both of those together bring about faith bring about a whole new beginning in your life. 
that leads to what? When you truly are confronted with Jesus and he extends to you, he speaks truth into you, I know who you are and I forgive you and restore you and make you a new person and I extend my grace upon grace upon grace to you. When you truly believe, what do you do? I worship. There is nothing left to do other than here's my heart, take it. Jesus, you've done what I never could do for myself with no other experience promised to do. Jesus, you provided for me this new life. All I can do is step back in awestruck wonder and worship you. And that is exactly what this man does. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe and I worship. That is the end result of man. To know God, to worship and enjoy Him forever. There is nothing else we could possibly bring. That's where the Gospel of John brings us. And here's how we close. To the religious who haven't seen and believed, it's grace or truth. Just give me more knowledge. I can ascend somehow to believe or accept or whatever. Or maybe it's all grace. Just don't confront me with anything else I need to do. For the, and I use religious in the word religious in the worst possible sense. I think you understand that, right? To the religious is one or the other. Maybe that's a struggle that you still have with your life. Because you can still read Scripture. You can still be confronted with Jesus and still struggle and trip up over, yes, but. Because we prefer one way or the other. But those who are beginning to see Jesus as he is, believe in the God who would extend both grace and truth. As we continue to worship this morning, remember to read the book of John and see Jesus as the one who loves you and extends grace and then truthfully knows you as you are and does not leave you there. The only way we can respond to him is in worship. So let's do that, but let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, as your word comes alive to us, its power uh, illuminates, it draws us nearer to you, even as you draw near to us. I pray, Lord, that you would work a new thing to reveal more both of your grace active in our lives so we can stand in it, and Lord, how you address the deepest needs in a truthful way, not ignoring or working around every part of us you know and every part you reconcile to bring us into right relationship with you. Lord, we worship you this morning in grace and truth because of your grace and truth. Make this time as we end sweet and worshipful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.